So this morning I want to continue the theme from last week, but broaden it some. Last week we looked at the theme of service to others as a path of practice. And we looked particularly at how that sense of seeing at least a major part of one's life as helping others could define a whole uh, path of practice. A path meaning sort of a clear sense of direction and uh, a way, as it were, to walk. What, you know, we think, what is a path? We use that metaphor in many areas, including the area of spiritual practice. So what is a path? What distinguishes a path from a non-path? You know? And when we look uh, very simply, a path is a kind of a clearing that one can walk on. And typically it goes in a certain direction. You know, although I remember, um, I remember when I was a student of philosophy, I read a book by Heidegger called Holzwege. It was a German name, it literally meaning paths in the woods which don't lead anywhere. <laughs> They're kind of the kind that you just wander on in the woods and they just, you go, you go all over the place and you kind of end up and you're just lost. You're nowhere. But in any case, we usually think of a path in the opposite sense. So I'm, hopefully service as a path of practice is not a Holtzweg. You know, or Holtz just means wood and Weg means way in, in, in German. And, um, but we, we have the sense of a path as there's a clearing. So it's not just brambles and brush that make it hard to walk, hard to proceed. Sometimes our lives without a path can feel like a brambles or can feel like we're just going through brush and uh, sometimes getting cut by the uh, brambles and so forth. And so a path seems to have a direction and it seems to be a clearing and we can walk on it. And it's a very simple sense of what a path is. So when we have a path of service, it's it's a way that we can walk that path and the direction that what makes it a path is a, there's a direction towards, we might say, greater awakening or greater development of the qualities of love and compassion, mindfulness, equanimity, and so forth. And that's really what characterizes a path and what, what is uh, necessary really to call it a path. So last time we looked at the sense of service uh, in a very broad sense, not simply meaning, uh, not simply meaning being with those in major need, but but service more in the sense of helping others, and it could be not necessarily through direct help of those who are needy, but it could be through one's work at many different levels. It could be in uh, whatever working on policy issues, or it could be in teaching yoga and really helping people to open their sense of their bodies, or it could be teaching people music, or it could be being a landscape architect, or it could be just really um, helping people with whatever their needs are. You know, that much of our lives could be understood in, in terms of service. And what we looked at were really three areas. We looked at first 
how part of what makes a uh, uh, activity of service, a path, is that we combine an inner dimension with the outer activity. We find ways to make that connection very alive. We find ways to um, have uh, a deepened inner sense as we, as we uh, engage in outer activity. And we, we know that typically uh, there are these dangers in uh, both meditation and service that that connection between inner and outer is not there. That one of the dangers of meditation is that it becomes purely inner. Especially if we mostly, if our main, as it were, sense of spiritual practice is maybe just sitting quietly, mostly on our own or sometimes in a group. And if we don't make explicit, how do you connect that with the rest of your life? That's at least a danger, you know, and it's sometimes we may find ourselves uh, grappling with that. And the opposite danger is quite common in the way that service often occurs in people's lives, which is that it just becomes entirely outer. It becomes something where one's just acting and not giving so much attention to the inner dimensions of it. One's helping others in some outer so-called objective way, but you might not be looking at your attitudes or consciousness or emotions and so forth. And that's, that's a danger, especially when we get busy, right? Sometimes we get busy and all we want to do is just get things done, right? So I can relax, you know, so I can complete my to-do list and reach nirvana. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> uh, and so those are, we, we talked about how that connection of inner and outer is crucial. And we also uh, had this very interesting um, discussion together about what are the main challenges of a path of service? What, what kind of challenges come up? And we looked at uh, all sorts of, I thought it was very, very uh, creative and helpful the way we did this. We looked at uh, that sense of how we sometimes get overwhelmed or burned out or we can have a separation between self and other, you know, uh, in service where I may think myself superior uh, and I may have a sense of pity towards others or the uh, uh, challenge of sometimes losing boundaries when we're helping, of not knowing how to navigate boundaries or getting attached to outcomes. You know, and we mentioned a number of different um, challenges, which I want to come back to, that, were, that came out of our own experiences here. Very, very creative, I thought, just at, at naming some of what is challenging about uh, path of service. And then lastly, we looked at some, some way, some looked at how in the context of service, we develop certain qualities. And I think I named uh, developing greater clarity of intention, developing more of a sense of generosity and more of a sense of compassion as three among many qualities that we might develop in a life of service. So I want to continue with that theme today and broaden it some, uh, and broaden it a little bit further to really include that sense of meaningful work, you know, which in a sense service could be a synonym for meaningful work because I think that uh, most meaningful work really is serving others. 
You know, I remember at the, in the discussion last time, we came up with the question of, is art service? <laughs> you know, is, art, is working in art or music uh, service? And I, and I think the inclination of the group was yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, but there, it's, it's um, uh, so I want to talk a little more broadly today. We can keep that focus on service as sort of a sub-theme, but I want to talk a little more broadly about uh, work as um, a path of practice. And again, we can think of what, what do we need to make it a path of practice. Um, I think, uh, broadly speaking, I would say um, really something like, uh, something like four main qualities make it a path. First of all, there's a clear intention. You know, there's a clear direction that we're going. And so we, we take work as a path of practice or service, and it may be that I take my core intention to, as it were, let my work, my service, be a place not just to do something to pay the bills, but actually to awaken. I connect it with my spiritual practice. You know, and we can ask what helps us to remember that sense of our core intention. Not so easy all the time. We get, you know, this again, one of the challenges or difficulties is that we easily get distracted. We get caught up in the details. We get overworked. And sometimes we only want to survive that old to-do list. And that's all that, sometimes we get in that survival mode. We just got to get that done. And we maybe forget that basic intention. And so staying in touch with that core intention, very, very fundamental. You know, and then secondly, having that way of connecting the inner and outer, which, which in a way is how do I make that intention alive? How do I have a sense when I'm acting in the world that I can have some inner awareness as well? So it, concretely, it can mean how can I bring aspects of inner awareness to my work, to my activity. You know, it may mean developing ways to be more mindful at work, or maybe just checking in periodically, what am I feeling? Or taking a lot of bathroom breaks to, to check, <laughs> so to speak, to check in the inner dimension. <laughs> uh, but seriously, we need you know, a lot of our forms of contemporary life are not conducive to that integration of inner and outer. So how do I make that inner and outer connection alive? And then thirdly, naming the challenges. Having this list, I think it's very helpful what we did last time, just naming, here are the challenges. Sometimes we need to name them to even be aware of them. This is like the question that you asked about the, um, about the ethical dimension of feeling like there are many in need, I could offer more, I could give more of my time and energy, what do I do? And just, I think, naming some of the issues and having them come up and looking at them somehow more carefully, very, very crucial. Naming the challenges, having a map, sometimes just naming, identifying them, having a map where it says this is what you'll deal with on your path of work as practice or services practice very, very helpful because, oh yeah, oh yeah, um, um, attachment to outcome. Oh yeah, fancy that you mentioned that. (laughs) 
I, 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 you know, I wasn't really noticing that before, but yes, I'm attached to 33 different outcomes in, in this work. And, and looking at it, not so easy, but I can, I can do that. And then lastly, specifically developing certain qualities in that path. So I think that's, in, broadly speaking, what, you know, one way to talk about a path, having clear intentions, a sense of inner and outer connection of our activities, inner awareness, connect with outer activity, identifying challenges, and then developing certain qualities. And I was thinking more broadly that I think many, if not for many, if not most of us, having deeply meaningful work is an incredibly strong longing that some of us feel we've met, some of us feel we haven't met. You know, I, I was thinking of um, writers that I can remember. I think, I think Freud talked about work as being one of the two or three main areas by which we define our lives. One of the two or three crucial areas. Was it work, love, and what was the other one? What? Just two, just, just love and work, right? Yeah. And <laughs> so it's just, yeah, so work, one of these two fundamental areas that define who we are. You know, and I was thinking of, um, um, I was thinking of my mother, who is, happens to be here. I won't, I won't look in her direction. And, and she brought me up continually saying, let your labore be your amore, you know, let your labor be your love, let your work be your love, combining the two. It came from reading Freud at a young age. And, and, um, and so we have that, that deep aspiration, and yet we know that it's very challenging. We know when people do polls, uh, many, many people say my work is not so meaningful. You know, and many people when I do one-on-one -on -one work with people, it's a perennial theme, you know? And how do, I, how do I find that kind of meaningful work? How do I find that sense of uh, vocation? And I think asking, asking that question is really fundamental. Sometimes, for some of us, we may be in a, in a time of transition, you know? For some, I was thinking that for some of us, we may be um, uh, retired or about to retire. So I was thinking for us, it's not work as path of practice, it's non-work as a path of practice. <laughs> maybe, <clears throat> maybe more relevant for some, but even there, we may be called to service. You know, for a lot of people, after they retire, uh, and if, if financial issues aren't so pressing, there can be a sense of wanting to volunteer, to help. I think that sense of what is a way to work in a meaningful sense, what is a way to serve, is so crucial. And sometimes we need to really um, listen carefully. Sometimes it's not so obvious what my work is, either in general or at this time. You know? And again, many times we find ourselves in transitions and need to listen carefully. The very word vocation, if some of you know, the etymology has to do with voice, with somehow hearing the voice or hearing the call. And we have, we also have the very word that we sometimes use for career is calling. You know, 
having a calling means something that we somehow hear the voice. And it goes back to, you know, the, the metaphor uh, goes back to um, biblical times. The metaphor of hearing the voice of God to tell you what to do. To tell you, and particularly in the context of ancient Israel, it was to hear the voice, particularly to take a leadership role. To hear that voice and that sense of hearing the calling has stayed very, very central. I think in even the um, the very word, uh, their very original word in Christian tradition for church is uh, ecclesia. We have the word ecclesiastical. It's the word for church in in Greek, and you know what it means? It means those who are called, those who have heard the call. So it's a sense of some inner voice. I think it suggests that if we want to find meaningful work, sometimes we need to listen very carefully. We need to set up a a place. I think this listening for vocation, for meaningful work, is something that often requires that we have less distraction. Especially if we find ourselves in a transitional time, it can be very crucial to to, to really consciously find ways to listen carefully. I know for myself when I've had major transitions, and actually at the moment I'm in a major transition because I've left a uh, work with a graduate school that I had for uh, over 15 years, you know, and I'm no longer doing that. So it's a kind of transition now. But I was thinking at other transitions in my life, it was very, for me it was very important to have retreat time where I could quiet myself and listen carefully for what is to come next. Very, very crucial to, to do. I was thinking even the Buddha. You, you know, the Buddha left a very, uh, we might say, nice setup, the historical. <laughs> the, you know, the life of the Buddha, right? He was what? He was in the palace, right? He, had, he was married, had a kid. Uh, all his needs taken care of him, you know, probably everyone telling him he was the greatest thing on earth, you know, and so forth. And he had this calling that he needed to leave and seek in a different way. And in a sense, he went into the forest, into the, into the jungle for six years. And he, in a sense, really continued just to listen. You know, the life story of the Buddha is about a guy in transition. <laughs> if you think of it that way, you think of your own transition, and that's what, that's what the Buddha was. He was a guy in transition <laughs> who was dealing with um, um, a lifestyle crisis, if you want to say that. Or he w- uh, and I'm, I'm make, making a little bit of humor, but actually there's a lot of truth to that. You know, he, he was really... He was coming, you know, that there are a lot of things in the, in the Buddha's life story that could be quite similar to ours, he, or some of us at least. He was living, he was finding that the life of comfort was inadequate to really um, make sense of certain longings that he had, certain wishes, certain voices that came up. And so there was that sense, there was that sense of listening. And so we have to somehow listen for what we, what we need to do. I like to uh, refer to this wonderful uh, saying 
by Howard Thurman, the great uh, African-American mystic and activist who set up the first uh, interracial church in San Francisco in the 1940s and, and was, a great, uh, was a, a great being, died about 1980. And a young man around 1970 asked him, he was very confused about what to do, and he asked, he asked Howard Thurman what to do. And you might have thought as a, you know, as a uh, spiritual person and an activist that he would have told him, well, you know, we really need you to, you should, you know, volunteer for our church. That's what you should do, <laughs> right? And, but, but no, he, here's what his answer was. He said, uh, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Interesting from an activist, right? Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right? So, and that may take this period of listening. It may take time. It may take transition. The Buddha listened for six years. You know, you look at the life story of many people and they sometimes take periods in which there is some confusion, not knowing what to do and quality of listening I was thinking of um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, came up in his work with uh, the boat people in the 1970s, came up against certain impasses. And he went back and did a great deal of meditation and gardening for five years. Not much outward activity. And out of that period came this flurry that started in the early 80s of teaching and writing and activism, but he spent five years not doing much. So I think we have to give ourselves some, some, some slack sometimes when we don't know what to do. Another aspect about uh, ser- service or work as a path of practice, we can connect that with the uh, Buddhist teaching about the right livelihood, which is part of the Eightfold Path. It's very interesting. Buddha gave this teaching that one's work should be really consonant with one's path and that having the appropriate work is fully part of one's path. And he was particularly talking about work that was ethical. The main teachings about right livelihood was, were to, to abstain from certain livelihoods that cause harm, harm to others particularly uh, uh, selling weapons or um, he thought killing animals also. He, he thought people should be careful about having uh, livelihoods that hurt others. But it's actually interesting that um, sometimes we don't have so much of a choice or what do we, what do, we do about others? And there's... there's um, some very interesting reflections from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh who talks about how this sense of livelihood isn't just personal. He's saying it's part of our responsibility that there are any livelihoods in the world where people are doing things that harm others. It's not just my personal responsibility to not do those things, but I should try to make there be a world where no one has to sell weapons. Or I should make there be a world where some livelihoods cause harm. I'll read you a little bit of what he said. He said this, Right livelihood is not just a personal matter. 
It is our collective karma. Suppose I am a school teacher and I believe that nurturing love and understanding in children is a beautiful occupation. I would object if someone were to ask me to stop teaching and become, for example, a butcher. But when I meditate on the interrelatedness of things, I see that the butcher is not the only person responsible for killing animals. We may think the butcher's livelihood is wrong and ours is right, but if we didn't eat meat, he would not have to kill. Right livelihood is a collective matter. The livelihood of each person affects everyone else. The butcher's children may benefit from my teaching, while my children, because they eat meat, share some responsibility for the butcher's livelihood. Millions of people, for example, make their living in the arms industry. The U.S., Russia, France, Britain, China, and Germany are the primary suppliers of these weapons. They're sold to third world countries where the people do not need guns, they need food. To manufacture or sell weapons is not right livelihood, but the responsibility for this situation lies with all of us. We have not yet organized a compelling national debate on this issue. We have to discuss this further and we have to keep creating new jobs so that no one has to live on the profits from weapons manufacture. If you are able to work in a profession that helps realize your ideal of compassion, be grateful. And please try to help create proper jobs for others by living mindfully, simply, and sanely. Use all of your energy to try to improve the situation. So it's another perspective. So this sense of work or service as a path of practice uh, gets a little bigger, doesn't it? And so there, there are these other issues that come in. And so we, we, we have a strong intention to bring our work or our service in, in connection with our path uh, practice, with our meditation and so forth. We find ways to make those inner and outer connections. And then we also have to, in a sense, name and work with the challenges. Big part of uh, taking work as a path of practice is to just name what are the challenges. And I really love how we did this. And I was thinking, there's a very nice book uh, that I've been reading by uh, Michael Mead, who sometimes teaches with Jack Kornfield. It's a book called The World Behind the World, Living at the Ends of Time. He, he, you can see he's a kind of poetic. He likes to play with language. The World Behind the World, Living at the Ends of Time. And in this book, he talks about the importance of finding uh, what he calls good trouble. He says there's bad trouble and there's good trouble. You should try to find good trouble. And actually, sometimes you don't need to try to find good trouble <laughs> because good trouble finds you. But to distinguish between bad trouble and good trouble. And I think what, so what, what defines good trouble? It's pretty much that there's something we can learn from. He says if we didn't have trouble, we probably wouldn't learn much at all in our lives. And so he's really, and this is something that we really learn in Buddhist practice, which is to have an appreciation for what's difficult. You know, and there are strong tendencies in our practice, even though we've heard Dharma talks a thousand times saying, don't just try to get rid of your problems, but learn from them. And we've heard that a thousand times. A problem comes, you say, I want to get rid of this. <laughs> Right. It's, it's, it's very common. And I think that it's very helpful to uh, balance ourselves so that our problems become workable. 
And that's, that's actually quite key. If our problems are overwhelming, we can't have good troubles. They're just bad troubles, so to speak. And, but the hallmark of our practice, or one of the hallmarks of our practice, is that things become workable, even challenging situations. And they not only become workable, but that they become places where we learn a lot. And they're often the kind of learning where we, we love the learning that we did in the past and don't like so much the learning that we're doing in the present. <laughs> we, and we may speak romantically of the wonderful learning I had from these wonderful struggles from like 20 years ago <laughs> or 10 years ago. But the ones in the current time, they're harder, right? They're harder to open up to and appreciate. But that is one of the great uh, gifts of our practice that they... They, they, we, things become more workable. They become good troubles. We can say, you know, you can go out later today and say, how are you doing? And people say, oh, I've got some wonderful trouble. <laughs> you know, but I think uh, what we try to do is we work with them. You know, sometimes the, the, the good troubles appear as difficult emotions that we can have some tools to work with. Sometimes they appear as what we named last time as the specific challenges of service, or we might broaden it and say work, as a path of practice. And I just wanted to name these and just reflect very briefly about each of these because I thought the naming last time that we did together was quite wonderful and fairly comprehensive. And we had this wonderful list that just came out spontaneously from the group right in the middle of the talk. I just said, well, stop the talk, we'll just name the challenges. And we did it, did it beautifully, I thought. And so we talked about the challenge of overwhelm or burnout. And we can, we can ask, we can identify these challenges from a few perspectives. One of them is that we identify the challenges partly to tune in and say, is that a challenge for me that I can name and see clearly? and know how to work with. Again, if, sometimes if we don't name issues, we're not so conscious of them. And so it can be very helpful. Something like overwhelm or burnout tends to be a little more obvious than others, but actually sometimes not, right? Sometimes we're just caught in the overwork. And so to ask ourselves, am I working too much? Am I overwhelmed? Am I burned out? Do I need renewal? Very fundamental question to ask. You know, and uh, just to almost have, almost like we take in our car for whatever. These days it's 12,000 miles, you know, used to be a little less. (laughs) But we can almost like, what if you took yourself in for a work as practice checkup once a month? You know, we had, you know, I don't know, we had a little booth here. Once a month, you came in and we okay, we got okay, we got ten little things to check out. You know, let me hold out, stick out your tongue. <laughs> yeah, a little overworked, <laughs> you know, or something like that. So we we that we look at these issues, we name them, we look at them. Uh, how am I in relation to level of work? Am I doing too much? If so, how can I respond to that? Yeah. And it's a challenge sometimes. Economically, these can be a challenge, and there's certainly times that are harder than others when we sometimes work. But some of it, as we know, is not so much the external conditions, but the internal um, what psychology. You know, that sometimes uh, needs the overwork to feel like I'm alive. If I relax too much, um, 
I might get bored, and that would be bad, worse than death sometimes. In the psyche, it's sometimes like that. Or the second issue we named was that of uh, separation. Can I, do I have a sense of uh, being separate from the people that I'm working with? Especially if I'm in service work where I seem to be, quote, helping people. In the Buddhist tradition, when, it's, when generosity is talked about as a quality to be developed, it's said that the highest development of generosity comes when there's no sense of either a giver, a gift, or a person to whom something is given. And that may sound extreme, but I think what it's really inviting us to do is what, is, what are the concepts in our mind when I'm helping others? Do I, have that, do I have some kind of fixation, even subtle, on being the helper, on identifying the gift, and that person being the helpee? And so part of our practice is to challenge that and to see where there's fixation for the sake of what? Self-image or for whatever reason, just really to look at that. And related to that, kind of the other side of that was what we named as the danger of losing boundaries when one is working or especially doing service. To what extent do I lose boundaries with those that I'm working with or helping? You know, it might be what? That I um, take the, you know, I'm working with people who have a lot of difficulties and I take them home at night, you know, and I somehow don't have a boundary where I can find balance myself. A lot of boundary issues we're probably quite familiar with. Do I tend to merge? Do, and what's going on there? Something to look at. Sort of the other side of separation. You know, can be that sense of, of merging at times. Attachment to outcome. Huge challenge, right? And these are not something that we just look at, put on the list, go to the monthly checkup, stick out our tongue, and they're all resolved, right? These are ongoing practices. We continually look, and this could be something we do for 30 years. We look, continue to look at that sense of separation, you know, sense of a giver and someone to whom something's given. We look at that. We continue examining that. We continue to look, how do I get attached to outcome? How do I, is there a way that I can keep on acting and be wise about how I think something will lead to the goal that I want. But then, as it's said by the poet T.S. Eliot, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. So we have our best plan, and then we, in a sense, have to let things go. Huge area uh, of work, huge issue in work. Then we named the issue of self-righteousness, we could say of uh, self-image, related to some of what we talked about before. How much do I have a self-image of being a helper? How much, as a Dharma teacher, do I have a self-image of being a Dharma teacher? You know, it's very important to look at that because it's inevitable that it'll be there some. You know, to the extent that there's any sense of separate self, there's going to be self-image and a certain amount of self-righteousness. And it's really helpful to name it and put it on the map and look at it. Not to berate oneself for it, but to keep looking. 
then we, we also named uh, sometimes confusion, not knowing what to do. I could relate to not knowing exactly what my vocation is at this time in my life or in general. Or it could be a confusion, not knowing how to act, being in a situation which has me befuddled. Can I stay with that? Can I somehow listen? Can I also acknowledge that sometimes it's okay not to know what to do? Um, I was thinking uh, a friend, Roger Walsh, who uh, has some, who's a psychiatrist who sometimes has consulted on large issues, large social issues. He tells the story of um, going before a group of people and being asked, what do you think we should do on this issue, Mr. Expert? And his answer was, I don't know. And there was this really awkward silence <laughs> for quite some time, but there was some some way that we don't want to admit that. But sometimes that can be the basis for actual creativity, saying that I actually don't know and just listening. We, had the, we also named the sense of inadequacy that sometimes comes up. could be self-judgment in my work. I might criticize myself and so forth. And then I'll, not to get you too gloomy with this list here, <laughs> which is a big list, but it's good to name them. Then one of the other ones that was named was the fact that sometimes in my work there are external factors that make it hard. I may be coming up, I may be wanting to enact a sane health care system in this country. <laughs> Hypothetical example. <laughs> and I may come up against uh, a lot of external factors, where I may in work come up against power issues. You know, so there's a lot of challenge. Very helpful to name that. Very helpful you can see. Wouldn't it be great if you had a community of people taking work as spiritual practice who could all consult on these issues and come together and talk? So we have the core intention to help others. We have the sense of connecting and inner and outer work. We have the sense of um, naming the challenges. And then of in connection with naming the challenges, but also a little bit independently, we cultivate beautiful qualities. A big part of the path, we cultivate mindfulness as we do here, understanding, we cultivate loving kindness, we cultivate the meditative qualities, we may be cultivating patience, we cultivate generosity, and it's very helpful just to name, I am developing these qualities, and to know that there are concrete ways to do that. And this would start to also give this fuller sense of a path. And we can know that many of those qualities are precisely tools or resources that help us to deal with the challenges. And so I think that this sense of work or service as practice is um, something so crucial to help us, I think, in our everyday lives. It's, it's a way of... Um, making this real with the kind of lives that we have so that the spiritual path isn't somehow entirely just about being quiet and having a deep insight, but it's something that we can really pursue in all the parts of our lives and in something that, you know, I mean, I, I long to have people who I can connect with and share with and compare notes with, you know, uh, frequently. You know, so I'm thinking of... <coughs> When I have worked a lot with the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we set up a program called the BASE program. 
in which people, and we have at least one graduate here, uh, we, that we set up a tr six month training program where we set up small groups which met once a week, sometimes twice a week, for people who were doing service and social change work in the world and wanted a community of people to really have that sh shared sense of, of path together. Maybe we should have more base groups at Spirit Rock, you know, or something like that. But it really the idea was that we need community. It's really what I want to close on, that sense of community really makes that not just something individual that we somehow have to do by ourselves. You have to remember the, you know, the, the 18 challenges and the 23 qualities I'm developing. And, you know, I've got to write them on my refrigerator. You know, and how am I going to do that? So I think community can play a very important role. And some of that, we need to be creative in developing that. Some of it can happen right here as we meet. But some of it we have to be creative about and meet with a friend for lunch every Friday, right? And talk about it. That community is really crucial for having this stay alive. So let's just sit for about 30 seconds or a minute and then we can talk together a little bit. Questions or reflections? Uh, Mark, please. It's a little bit off the subject in a way, but I've been very absorbed with the, uh, the killing that took place at Yale recently of a, of a research worker named Annie Lay. And what the reason I mentioned bring it up at all is that when he said that the Buddha advised against uh, pursuing a livelihood that involves the killing of animals, the person who killed her appears to have been a lab worker, part of whose job was killing animals that in the lab actually mm -hmm. there, which served their mm -hmm. purpose. Yeah. So it struck me that there was a connection there. I'm sorry, this is slightly, slightly off your, mm -hmm. your topic, but it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's a complex issue, isn't it? You know, there's, there's it's a lot of complexities. Um, um, Yeah, I think Thich Nhat Hanh's comments make it very poignant because he was saying that we can't so easily say they do it and we don't do it. If we benefit from the scientific research, aren't we involved with that? Right? And so it's not so can't easily so separate ourselves can't so easily separate ourselves. On a larger scale, I know that uh, um, not so much in terms of killing um, small animals in the case of research, or, but I know that there's a correlation between the killing of larger animals uh, by um, teenagers and um, criminal behavior. That it seems to sometimes be a um, crossing a boundary that uh, opens up certain levels of aggression and hatred. Yeah. That's not as, as a job, but just that I think, I, think the, what, I think what the Buddhists really pointing to is the way that conscious killing can really um, 
um, keep the mind in difficult patterns. Yeah, please. I think of something coming before that. Um, usually, kids or teenagers who care or torture animals have been abused yeah. themselves. So that just yeah. that way that we treat each other. It's really about the cycles of violence, you know, because I because I know I know also I w- I once read a study from the American Psychological Association about, and they said the greatest single correlation for youth violence was a bet that they had had violence done to them. So, so I think we have that sense of cycles, and that's cycles, cycles of violence or cycles of hatred or cycles of greed, and the whole aim of practice, and really, and, and to know that we in some ways participate in that. So the whole sense of making a path of practice in our work is to know that even if we may take, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, a more a vocation that seems to be not involved with that, that we may in some more subtle ways be involved. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Please, Ruth. Yeah. Um, I'm Jean Hay, Jean Hay, so this is the first time I've heard this. Um, but I was very struck by the idea of the relationship between the wheel of Dharma and the, and the service as practice, yeah. running along the path with the spokes of the wheel, such problems as being overwhelmed and too much to do, and how you run that wheel throughout your dharma and throughout your practice along the path of life. Yeah. That, the, the, that you have the, the wheel as helping you to stay on the path? Yeah, it's almost like, and it's also, as you know, sometimes we use the metaphor of the vehicle. <laughs> so the path is now is asphalt, and or but it's it's interesting. But but yeah, it's really it's really another way to say it is what kind of support structures do we need to have our lives be uh, integrated with what we most deeply believe and want? What kind of support structures in terms of? teachings, in terms of community, in terms of practice. And, and I think, you know, as I was saying, I think we need quite a few more support structures than we actually have. And the Dharma is the support structure. Yeah. Along, inside that wheel. Yeah. It along the path. Yeah, like the Dharma could be like the center of the wheel. Yes. Yeah. Or something, or it could, it's also the, you know, kind of almost like the... Um, the very path itself. And how you can have being overwhelmed as one of the spokes of the wheel of life, but it's also surrounded by loving kindness. Yeah. I think we need a, a drawing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how I see things, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah please. This may be throwing the image a little further, but I just get the picture. One of the things I'm working with a lot right now the sense accepting that there will be flat tires once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> to, to not need uh, to stay so on track yeah. that there never is a flat tire or to, we used the word earlier, break yeah. for times when things do get out of balance, that we are human beings. And so yeah, fantastic. Sometimes and finding resources to deal with a flat tire instead of having it be totally objectionable that we ever do get a flat tire. Yeah, because yeah, if I can 
take the liberty of talking a little bit about your own project. I mean, I guess the bulk of your work is as a pediatrician, right? But this project with Native Americans from Pine Ridge, very complex project in some ways, right? Has a lot of, I mean, I know from our discussion some of the intricacies of it. So sometimes there are things that just don't go right. That really, that their problems arise or something, you know, inevitably, right? And so I guess I'm hearing you say that you, there's some learning to have more, what, equanimity or a big picture, right? Or just, I guess, accepting times when I'm out of equanimity. Yeah. Equin just being equanimous about non-equanimity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to, to seek it, but to yeah. not struggle with it quite so much. Yeah. Just say, okay, especially like this time of the year when it's getting close to their coming. Yeah. There is a lot to, yeah. to manage. And so I just accept Yeah, and, and in a very um, concrete way in terms of how our minds work, it might be simply to say when I have a thought come up, that's critical of what happened or complaining, that I can be mindful of it and I don't feed it. Sometimes it comes, often it comes really just down to that. Yeah. Please, yeah. I was thinking um, on the, the darker side of the conversation a couple minutes ago about you know, children and violence. And, and in some work I've done and teachers I've had many years ago, with some of those very young kids and in challenging situations, one of my teachers used the phrase, we need to have people join the human family and that there are some people who, who have been children because of their, um, how they were treated, didn't ever join the human family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that it resonated with what you were saying, um, which is a huge, important, sad <laughs> burden in the world, um, but I appreciate what you were talking about, that support for, for ourselves, and to use the connections we fortunately have with the human family, yeah. and, and to nurture them, um, and then go out, and <laughs> I mean, you really have to use those deep connections that many of us have the privilege of getting, yeah. um, to, but we, we have to Hold on to them in the light of the connection, in the light of the darkness. But uh, you know, to whether you literally do that work or you do other work, but to to hold on to those just simple connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, I, if I'm under in your name again, Liz. Liz if I'm understanding you uh, correctly, Liz, it's um, it's recognizing <coughs> that. Um, for some people, to serve them simply means to welcome them into the human family. You know, it could mean to, you know, I have quite a few, I have several students who work with uh, teenagers in trouble, for example, who've been, you know, basically got into the criminal justice system at a pretty young age. And that's, that's what their work is, really. It's to, you know, and I, I have uh, several several students who've uh, worked with very people in very pretty rough, desperate situations, and they use the tools of community, but especially using uh, yoga and meditation and martial arts. And it's, quite, it's been quite, uh, you know, I have one student who lives in near Salt Lake City, who um, 
he's, um, he's, he has impeccable Mormon ancestry, so he can do this. But he's the, um, he's the superintendent of a lockdown facility for about 90 teenagers. And he takes them through a year or a year and a half program using martial arts, meditation, and yoga. And he kind of has a certain um, kind of street credibility. He kind of looks like, you know, he's kind of, he looks he like he was a bodybuilder and he's kind of, he has like shoulder length blonde hair and he's a bodybuilder physique. And, you know, they don't mess with him, is <laughs> one way to say it. But, but there's, uh, it's really welcoming them back into the family. I think is is that kind of work, and it's really a, you know, reestablishing structures that were never there. That's what you're saying, and so I, th- I think it's helpful to be conscious that that's sometimes the work. Yeah, maybe just last one because we're we're over time. Yeah. Um, I don't recall the gentleman's name, but years ago there was a writer who wrote *The Road Less Traveled*, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. a very popular book. And then he came out with another one called. Yeah. Does anybody remember the people of the line? Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to bring up is the danger of what he did in this second book, which I think is kind of an unfortunate tendency that seems to arise out of some of the Christian community, which is to polarize evil people, good people. So that's the danger that I think you were talking about in the beginning of this kind of Mm -hmm. superiority. Because yes, there all of us wouldn't be here if we didn't have some chink in our understanding. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, none of us understand perfectly. Some of us are pretty darn chinked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's true. But to, to create this kind of mindset that there are them and us, the saved ones and the lost ones. Just to be careful. Really. Be careful of that. Discussion and be careful of that kind of thinking that we do come from this Christian um, culture that has a tendency to polarize. And just the other day I heard that the story in the Bible about God and Satan being in this contest actually goes way, way back to the time of Zoroaster. This is a legend out of Yes, yeah, so certain early uh, dualistic tendencies. Yeah, and your name is? My name is Deborah. Deborah. Thanks, Deborah. I think the author is Scott Peck. Scott Peck. Yeah. Um, and it'd be interesting for him to respond to you about his own work. But, <laughs> but, but at least the, the point that you're making is, um, is to watch out for that tendency to create dualities. I'm thinking that of course, when we look to the actual teachings of Jesus, they were especially about non-duality. And they were saying, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? You know, why do you complain about the plank in your neighbor's eye, or the splinter in your neighbor's eye when you have a plank in your own, right? <laughs> so he's kind of making the same, and of course, a few uh, million people haven't quite got that <laughs> at times. <laughs> but but the, the emphasis here is really uh, that, again, I think we can find any, any of us can take that teachings and create self-image <laughs> around it. But what we're really encouraging here, I think you get the spirit of Thich Nhat Hanh and so forth, is not to think, oh, I've got this wonderful vocation. These people don't, right? It's really to see our, the way that we really participate in the larger system. One, one way to see your point. Another way is just to 
through mindfulness and meditation to open up to our own vulnerability where we can see that and, and see our own uh, imperfection, like Nancy was saying, and, and so forth. So it's very, in a, in a sense, to make this, to make uh, work and service a matter of practice rather than a matter of, cre- uh, what, um, enhancing self-image. Yeah, that's, that's one way to say it. To make everything practice, which means we're all on the way. So sitting quietly for about a 30 seconds or a minute to close, letting what's been helpful from the morning be there for you. Any insight? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.